Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 108. I'm here in the vomitorium on a January evening down in the bunker with my good friend and the world's greatest co-host, oh, well, thank you. Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you this evening, Jeff? I'm feeling good. It feels like we've been away from this for a while. It has been a while. It hasn't been that long, but it feels like a while. The fans are clamoring. Yes, they are. Exactly. They're getting restless. That's correct. Rest- Give us some new content already. Right. I think it's part of it is, you know, we have the holidays that are now behind us. We're yes. Kind of, you know, we're kind of, you know, forward into the new year. Correct. Correct. Right. It's a, a time for a fresh start and, and leaving the past behind. That's us. right. And yeah. we're going to get this episode out at least in the first week. That's that's the plan. Yes. Did you make any New Year's resolutions? I did not this year. Not even one? Well, I mean, I started I started um, getting back into uh, into exercising, yes. to do some weightlifting. And so I guess you're my, looking fit over there. Well, thank you. I, um, so I guess my, re- my resolution is to continue with that. Right. How about you? Uh, well, I resolved that I was not going to complain about the weather. Really? Like I did so much on the podcast last year. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do remember. Smarch this and smarch that. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to do that? Well, I don't know. I probably will end up doing it, but I'm intending not to complain about the weather gotcha. so much. Now, you strike me as someone who's, who would... Uh would be kind of bah humbug about the whole resolution kind of thing. I am pretty bah humbuggy about the resolutions. Yeah, but okay. I made one resolution. Yeah. It's uh, like 1920 by 860. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I'm going to try to write 2023 on every check. Oh, really? That's my resolution. Are you still writing checks? Yes. Don't people write checks? Hardly any anymore. Really? Everything's digital these days. Oh, I guess so. Do you have your uh, Apple wallet and your Google Pay? I got my Venmo and my my Brogo. You're so cutting edge. Oh, man. I'm on on top of it, man. Right. What's this podcast about? Oh, uh, what are we talking about tonight? Well, just generally. I'm I'm trying to gently, oh so gently, move us back to the topic. I see. Well, we we talk about the classics on this podcast. That's correct. Right, right. So. It's the class. It's the podcast for classical gourmands, That's right? right. Yeah. People who like to take it in and keep it down. Exactly. All right. That's right. So, what are we talking about tonight? So, tonight's topic is book eight. We are back to Virgil's Aeneid, book eight. We're going to talk about the story of Evander mm-hmm. and the monster carcass. Yes, right. Now, I was I was excited as as reviewing material for this. Mm-hmm. Kind of back in my mind. It's been a while since I've read through the Aeneid, right? But I've always associated kind of these like books eight, nine, and ten as. As kind of the doldrums yeah. of the of the Indian. You had a you had a similar attitude toward the uh, the intermediary books of the Odyssey, if you remember. Once we get past eleven, yeah, the Nequia, right. and then you get into the intermediaries, twelve, thirteens, and fourteens. Yeah, you thought those were kind of sleepy too. I do, and it maybe Virgil kind of imitating. Uh, Homer to agree. I mean, cause those those latter books in the Iliad too are kind of those. It's like one battle, and how many times right. did one guy's you know head get chopped off? Right, right. There has so, to be some variety. Yes, but this I was. This is just a long way of coming back around to saying that I was I was really kind of pleasantly invigorated by right. kind of the first half of the, of book eight, which we're going to try to cover cover tonight. This is mm. really, really great stuff. Yes, one of the reasons that I like it is that I used to teach from this little Latin companion book. Some people might know it. It's a 38 Latin stories. Yeah. It's got a white cover. Yes. Not a great font. I, I don't think, I don't know if it's in Hackett's repertoire, but uh, Groton and May, I think yeah. Anne Groton and James May. From St. Olaf. That's right. Yep. And um, this is one of the stories covered in there. Oh, yeah. Is uh, Hercules and the monster, the Caucasus. Co- yeah. yeah. And so I taught on that, you know, so many, many times that 
that portion is familiar and a very good story. It is a great story, and um, we'll be looking at we'll be looking at some Latin as always, and right. and Lombardo's translation of this uh, of this event is is fantastic. Yeah, and I would yeah. like to just tip off something that's going to come up in the middle, and that is uh, somewhere in the middle, Lombardo's translation refers to Hercules as quote the mightiest Avenger. Oh, really? Yes. I missed that. Yes, the Mightiest Avenger, which if, you know, you've been following Marvel at all. The MCU. Correct. Yes. <laughs> this is one of their catchphrases. And tie-in, if you saw the utterly horrible most recent Thor movie, as oh, some unnamed person I was, did. I was warned away from it. I think maybe I warned you away maybe from it. Maybe it was you, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, it was wretched. One of the closing scenes, they introduce Hercules. Oh, okay. He's going to be in this in the the Marvel universe in the future. Do, do you remember who plays Hercules? Is no, anybody recognize? It's not a well known name. Okay. Not well known to me, at yes. least. Uh, impressive individual. Yeah, might turn out um, physically impressive. Shirtless, as, as you would expect. Does he show up shirtless, of course. <laughs> um, so it might turn out to be okay. Okay, but I thought, yeah, Stan, did you know the Mightiest Avenger? That's a catchphrase, or uh, maybe the MCU got it from Stan. Who knows? Who knows? Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we got no shout out tonight, do we? That's 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 always a letdown. Yeah, it is a little bit of a letdown. Yeah. However, mm -hmm. um, the last episode on the Lucan census, yeah, that thing went through the roof. It Pe did. People really liked that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, listener, if you if you're jumping to this one, right, uh, dial back, check that out. Yeah. Yes, it was it was real popular. So this this uh, I bring it up because somebody's listening. They just don't want to be acknowledged on air. Right. Right. Exactly. So send us those notes. Correct. Keep them coming. Now, Jeff, I think you have uh, the opening quote, which is going to set up this entire um, book. We're probably going to only cover half of Book 8. Is that right? Uh, yes, I, I think so. We're and not going to get to the shield. No, I think the shield will be probably next episode. Yes. Right. So the story within the story um, of the um, kind of the fight between Hercules and Cacus is, um, is the set piece for yep. the first half of Book 8, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, this opening quote comes from a uh, an article entitled Hercules, Cacus, and Evander's Mythmaking in Aeneid 8 by one David Antonio Secchi from uh, a edition of Harvard Studies in Classical Philology from uh, about 10 years ago. 2013. Yes. So, Jeff, that, uh, if I may, that's painfully recent. Yes. Right? It in is. Classic, you know, in, in classics times, classicist times, it's mm -hmm. like yesterday. It is. Right. This this article hasn't had any time to breathe, no, really. No, the ink is still drying. Right. It. Right. What does uh, Professor Secchi have to say? He says, the tale of the struggle between Hercules and Cacus towers over the ideological panorama of Aeneid 8. You know, I looked out my bedroom window this morning and I thought, what a nice ideological panorama. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is some, uh, how do we want to put it? florid prose it is. to begin yeah. this particular article it's a little much it's it is much. but that's what you that's what you have to do if we're going to interrupt <laughs> if we're going to interrupt the article as we go through it yeah i have one coming up too excellent all right uh, uh second continues uh, but such a complex weave of ideological and mythological motives is not without drawbacks let me pause you there yes C complex weave <laughs> that's what i'm planning uh to cover up my bald pate oh man i need one i need one myself no you got more than i do oh, but uh yeah okay yeah the, the complex weave i just thought hmm <laughs> ideological and mythological motives is not without drawbacks every weave has some drawbacks some drawbacks right on a close inspection, Evander's tale turns out to contain a number of inconsistencies that go well beyond the complexity and magnitude of Virgil's ideological, encomiastic, and mythological effort. Mm. See, now, 
if we can just pause again, mm-hmm. I don't know, Mr. Secchi, um, yeah. it was pu- published by the Harvard Studies in Classical Ph- Philology, so we can assume the bar was pretty high. Yes. But when I wrote articles in graduate school, my goal was to include as many polysyllables as possible. Was that right? Of course. <laughs> if you use short, approachable words, it, you don't sound like you're saying anything significant. No. If You've got to use large jawbreakers. Exactly. If you're clear, we don't, right. yeah, we want, don't have anything to do with it. No, right? it's got to be sesquipedalian. <laughs> That's right, right. But I digress. Continues. These inconsistencies are usually seen as temporary props inserted by Virgil or as due to lack of revision or as anachronistic references. So he gives three different reasons, right? Yes. For these things in Book 8 that he doesn't particularly like. Yes. Or he thinks they don't fit, these inconsistencies. Yes. So temporary props, lack of revision, or anachronistic reference. Yes. Okay. Therefore, Evander's reliability as a narrator tends to remain unchallenged. Evander does indeed do a good job in depicting Cacus as a true scourge of the Seven Hills, to the point that Cacus almost emerges as the real focus of Hercules' tenth labor. Unlike Geryon, who is merely described as a defeated and despoiled enemy, Cacus is a monster with truly Typhoean attributes and Cyclopean savagery. Wow. Guy can turn a phrase. Yeah. Yeah. So just to fill in the gaps. Yes, we need to provide a little bit of a backfill here. So the story of of Cacus, as it's usually told, is um, Hercules is on his way back to Greece after dealing with the triple-bodied Geryon. Yes, this is the 10th labor. Yes. Right? So the triple-bodied Geryon lives in Spain. Yeah. And uh, he is the son, if I'm not mistaken, of Medusa. Yes, that's right. When her head was severed, the blood uh, came out and gave birth to Geryon, this guy with three torsos. Mm -hmm. And uh, he um, shows up in very early Greek vases, and it's a very fascinating story. He's got the four-headed dog, too, right? Right, who I believe is a relative of Cerberus. That's correct. Yep. And uh, so Hercules goes over there and steals his cattle. Yes. And then on the way back, he travels over the Pyrenees, just to keep the geography uh, in mind, over the Pyrenees. So he's heading northeast. He goes across the Alps. He goes down into Italy. Right. And between the 10th and the 11th labor, he has this one with Caucasus. Right. Now, just in terms of geography, it's always right. puzzled me. Like, where is he? T- he's going back to Greece. He's got to prove this, this labor to Eurystheus, right? Back right. in Tyrans. Um, where is he going exactly? Is he going to put him on a boat? And no, then, he's going to take them all across land, I think. But, but why is he coming down the boot of Italy? I mean, going back to Greece, you're going to have to get on a boat somewhere. It is a par aragon. Yeah. He, as he's traveling along, I yeah. uh, have this on good authority, he heard that down in Italy there was another monster, and he thought, well, you know, I might as well just so go a, dispatch that one. I see. Just take a little detour. Right. Okay. All right. So, exactly. so I keep using this word par aragon, yes. right? Hercules' labors are the... Uh, Dodica, the Dodica ta erga, the 12 labors, right? Mm-hmm. Is it 12? 12, yeah. yeah. Right. And um, this is a side job, yes. right? He has several of these along the way. He slew a whole bunch of um, Ligurians, if I'm not mistaken, with bow and arrow um, on his way down into Italy. And like you say, why stop off in Italy? Yeah. There's another monster to dispatch. Right, exactly. And and this is one of these tales that you know the Romans seized upon. They loved it. And wove it into their own kind of mythological backstory. Yeah, and the reason seems to be that you have to connect with Hercules somehow. Yeah. Every locale has to have a Hercules story. It's true. It's just so interesting. It's kind of like the way that every town in the United States has a street named Lafayette. Yeah, right, right. Or because of the, you know, the famous... Uh, revolutionary French general. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you just got to have that connection. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right, Her- Hercules. And he was also, you know, prodigious in his offspring. So, you know, right. you know, many, many royal families could, 
you know, trace their lineage back to you know, Heracles' uh, bloodline. That right? was very delicately put, Dr. Oh, Winkle. Thank you. Prodigious in his offspring. Right. Well, nice. when, when we actually cover Heracles uh, uh, as a topic, it's going to be harder to be delicate. You may not be so delicate. <laughs> may not, right. right. Well, he was a philanderer. Right. So, I think, broadly speaking, what Seki's setting up here is, is that there are some issues with the, the, the Caucus episode as Virgil presents it. And so um, Seki's kind of scratching his head about it because he's, okay, is this something that, that Virgil would have gone back, you know, had he lived longer um, and kind of cleaned this up? Because there are some odd things about it that don't seem to really right. um, connect with uh, larger themes and, and such. So, um, book eight has a number of unfinished lines. We'll actually look at one of them today. So it, it raises those questions, you know, um, uh, which we've alluded to, but we'll, I mean, we'll, I think we'll dive into once we get to the end right. of, of the series is to what degree is the Aeneid unfinished? Correct. Yep. Right. We need to tell the audience who Evander is, too, because we keep talking about him. Yeah. And some of them may not really know. So who is Evander? Right. That's what I was asking you. Oh, asking me. <laughs> well, he's the, um, he's the local uh, chief of the Arcadians. Correct. He's yeah. a Greek by heritage. He's a, a descendant of Hercules. Yes. And as we'll see in just a moment, the book opens, the book develops. Aeneas makes a journey to Evander to ask for help yes. to form an alliance, in the process of which he gets this long, digressive backstory right. on Evander's famous ancestor, Hercules. Hercules, right. And just as with Homer, anytime there's a long digression, a long story within a story, it's going to speak to larger themes. Right. right? It's not just um, taking a break from the from the bigger narrative. It's saying, okay, what is, um, what is Aeneas supposed to hear in this story? Right. Yeah. Very good. All right, so let's dive into the into the text. Right. So we're getting into, I mean, we're gearing up for war. Correct. Right? So it's gonna eventually gonna break out um, between Aeneas and his allies, and Turnus and the Rutulians, and right. everybody on his side. And we're gonna get into that full Iliadic um, bloodletting. Yes. Uh, but we're not quite there yet. We've got some, um, you know, uh, alliances to sort out, and and that's really what's happening in the first part of Book Eight. Correct. So there were some skirmishes in Book Seven when the gates of war were open. Right. When that famous albino stag was accidentally killed. By Aeneas' son Ascanius, mm -hmm. because Juno arranged it all, she must have war. So there were skirmishes and so forth, but, you know, the full conflict, like you were saying, hasn't quite begun yet. Right. We're still waiting on that. So um, uh, the, uh, we see Aeneas uh, early in this book, a lot like we see him in his very first appearance in the epic. He's kind of, he's, um, he's tossing and turning. Um, he's worrying. He doesn't know kind of where his fate is leading him. He's kind of on that knife edge of of, uh, of uh, indecision. Right. And so he has this vision where the uh, river god uh, Tiberinus shows up to him. Yes. Yep. The father of the Tiber. Yeah. Sacred to the Romans. Right. And so he's the one. I mean, and this is a pattern throughout this book. You know, when uh, Aeneas is kind of at the height of his of his uh, angst, uh, some kind of divine sign kind of comes in to kind of reassure him that, you know, you're on the right path or kind of push him to the next destination. And do you like that? I know before you were saying you found, I mean, this was many episodes ago, but you found the constant reference to Aeneas as pious Aeneas, I'm pious Aeneas, a little dull. Are I, you still feeling that way? A little bit. I mean, this this book too is replete with um, lots of rituals done properly, right? right? And, and you know, the wine is poured at this point, and this is when you slaughter the cattle, and and all that. That gets a little, uh, to me, it gets a little old. But well, um, let's examine that for a minute. Sure. Do you have rituals in your life? Of course, I have rituals, okay. but I don't. So, I, I don't write epic poetry about them, right? You know, I'm not. These aren't on display for. But isn't that just, if I may, <laughs> a failure of imagination? Not a lack of desire uh, to represent rituals in what you had written. I don't mean a failure of imagination, but mm -hmm. 
if you were inclined to write an epic poem, mm-hmm. wouldn't you put your rituals in there? I would, but I'd, I'd mix it up a little bit. Okay. Right? So I think that um, I get, I know, and I know I'm not alone in this, I get, I get tired of Aeneas as kind of this blank slate, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't, he's not, he, he's, he's not an Odysseus, right? Yeah. We don't see him, his, his first, his first line of, of defense or attack is, I'm going to use my wits, mm-hmm. right? He's usually like, like, you know, what am I supposed to do here? And then some you know, kind of mini Scooby-Doo ending has to come in and say, mm. and, and say, and kind of push him to the next um, square okay. on the chessboard. Right. So I find that a little, I think it's just, I find Aeneas um, a bit dull. Okay. I mean, I've loved kind of going back to the, the Aeneid. I, I've, I've found all kinds of wonderful things here, but Aeneas is not one of them. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Do, I mean, you want to, you want to throw back on that? Um, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think charitably and fairly, not about you. Uh <laughs> But about the Romans, I'm trying to think how it would have appealed to the Romans. I'm wondering, is there some different toleration? I've heard it said um, different people have different capacities or patience, capacities with or patience for repetition Mm. and ritual. Yeah. Right? And I think that's true for sure. We've talked about this in terms of humor, right? If something is funny once, you and I find it funny a thousand <laughs> times. Right, right, right. Uh, the kind of you know stupid shenanigans that we were up to in Greece. I mean, yes. It's just funny, funny, funny. Exactly. Other people don't think so. No. Um, so maybe it's similar with this kind of ritual. Maybe every time the Romans heard in, in Virgil's poem that Aeneas was acting piously and performing the rites and duties, mm-hmm. maybe that resonated with them. And they thought, oh, that's so interesting. Un- I mean, undoubtedly, right? So I just I just started this book um, on Constantine. Right. And in the first chapter, I'm blanking who the author is, but kind of he wants to set up okay, what was... What was the tenor of Roman religion, you know, going going back? Right. Kind of setting the stage. Prior to the Constantinian... Conversion. Right. Right. Whatever that was. And um, he's talking about how, you know, the, the calendar of rituals. Right. You know, what you, you know, who you're worshiping, what you're doing on particular days, that really gets nailed down with Augustus. Yes. Right. And so I think that... And it's it's endlessly complex, Endlessly right? complex, right. It's uh, like trying to fill out your taxes. Exactly, right. And you, and you have to keep track. Okay, who's been deified this week? Right. right? <laughs> and I mean, it's fascinating. Or and they talk about how like, even you know every um, every platoon or every centurii right. in the army had their the standard becomes kind of contains like the, the genius right. of the platoon. Yeah, genius in the sense of the tutelary deity. Yes, right. Not, not genius in the sense of a really smart person. Right. And so there were days that the army you, you would you would garland your, right. your standard and you would you would you know you'd uh, pour out the wine and such, and all of that really starts with Augustus. So if you read you know. Um, Virgil's hyper attention to proper ritual against right. that background. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. When we get on to the um the prophecy of the white sow. Yeah. Right. I was immediately put in mind of the Arapacus, right? Oh yeah. With the swine that are on that very famous um monument that was set up by and now reconstructed by Augustus. Yeah. So the Romans were a deeply ritualistic people. They seemed to, to love it. They seemed yeah. to really enjoy it. And I just wonder as uh, post Enlightenment individuals if we can ever have the same level of appreciation. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point, right? It can it can strike us as kind of excessive and, right. and or or silly. While we meanwhile overlook the large amount of ritual in our own lives. Right. I was just hoping you'd just, you know, give us one. What's one Winkelian uh, ritual that you never get tired of? I don't know if I get, if I you know being tired of it uh, comes into play, but when I'm in the gym, right? And I'm lifting weights in between sets, I walk from the machine, I go get a drink. 
and I do a lap and I come back. Wow. Every single time. Every single time. And I watch it. Everybody else in the in the gym will do their will do the reps if they're on the machine. Right. And then they'll just sit there. Or maybe stare at themselves in the mirror. Stare at the mirror or maybe pick up their phone. Yeah. To wait it out. And so I always have to kind of move. And I, I find something very you, comforting in that ritual. You walk and you drink I walk and you and, walk back. And I walk back. Yeah. Between every... See, I set. love that, Winkle. I could hear that story a thousand oh, times. Oh, yeah. Isn't that, and isn't that I, fascinating? I would never get bored right. of that. <laughs> so let me get this. You walk. All right. Okay. Let, can we move on, please? No, I'm not making fun of you. No, I'm, right. Okay. Right. Okay. Hey, how about we read some Latin? All Would right. I'd some? love to. Okay. So this is uh, starting with what, line 36? Yes, and this is Tiberinus in the mm-hmm. vision speaking to uh, Aeneas. And Tiberinus, again, that's the, the adjectival form of the word for the um, the river Tiber. Right. So this is the father Tiberinus, the the god of the, of the river, right? Yes. Okay, so he says to Aeneas, O satagenta deum troyan ex hostibus urbem, qui rebehis nobisai terna qua pergama surwas, expectata solo laurren tar visque latinis, Hic tibi certa demus certi nabsista penates, neobeliter rere menis tumor omnis et irdrae, concasse redeum. Oh, oh, and it's stopped. A, it's a, it's an unfinished line. Right. Yep. Yeah. So there are a couple dozen of these scattered through the 12 books of the Aeneid. I was reading, it was, it's, it, there's a 58. 58? There's 58. Oh, I was way too low. Unfinished lines, yes. Huh. Right. So it's this is one of these things that I mean that are yeah, a part of the Aeneid that are clearly unfinished. So that's about um, not quite five per book. Yeah, if my arithmetic is correct. Yeah. Interesting. And so yeah, we we uh, we can talk more about this, especially at the at the end of this series. But, right. But yeah, this is one of these very clear places where you know Aeneid uh, Virgil, if he had lived, he would have gone back and polished this up. Yeah. No, I want to make a prediction. Yeah. I want to predict that somewhere in some. Dusty volume. Yeah. There's some recherche article about how each one of these lines was intended to be unfinished. Oh, really? And it has to do with um, Virgil's deep displeasure with the Augustan regime. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah you're, you're probably right. <laughs> that's, which I'm trying to make fun of even as I describe the possibility <laughs> because I think, you know, it's probably just he didn't finish them. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, I get that impulse to, to want to give Virgil the benefit of the doubt. Right? I appreciate and that. To, and, to, and to say, okay, well, this must be part of his genius. Yeah, right? but that's kind of ridiculous. No, yeah, exactly. You want to give us uh, Lombardo's translation there of those lines? Yep. And as has been our practice, uh, um, I'll translate the lines you just read and a little bit more. Excellent. So um, the god of the Tiber says this, child of the gods, you bring us, you bring us our Troy back from the enemy. And you preserve Pergamum forever. You have been awaited on Laurentine soil in Latin fields. Here your home is sure. Do not draw back. And sure are your gods. Do not be frightened by threats of war. All the swollen wrath of the gods has ebbed away. To assure you this is no empty dream, I offer a sign. Lying under oaks you will find a sow near a hidden stream with a litter of thirty, a white mother lying on the ground, and white young nursing. Here shall be your city and Surcis from sorrow. Okay. Very nice. So now we have a prophecy. Mm-hmm. So similar to the way in which Aeneas and his men, uh, many books ago, received the prophecy that when they reached their final resting place, uh, they would know they were there by eating their tables. Yes. And the, it turns out... That was... Uh, flatitza. Flatitza. Yeah, yeah, the first pizza. Right. Right. And uh, didn't Odysseus get a sign... That when people were using uh, an oar as a winnowing fan, oh yes, he would know. Right, exactly. When mm-hmm. they asked him where you, he had an oar on his shoulder, and he had to go until they asked him, "What are you doing with a winnowing fan on your shoulder?" Correct, the place where they didn't know what an oar was. Right, too far from the water. Right. Yeah. So similarly, now Aeneas gets this sign. 
of a white sow with a litter of 30 piglets. Yeah. What do you think about this one? Um, You know, I'm, I'm realizing now as I'm looking at this that um, in the show prep, I didn't really think about you know, why, a, why a pig? Why a, mm-hmm. why a pig nursing? I guess um, it's kind of an Abrahamic type of prophecy. You're going to be the father of many children. Yeah, I don't know. Given the prohibition against the eating of pork in the Old Testament, <laughs> that I, may not have been. I was the, speaking the, very broadly. Okay, right. All so, right. But, so a sow with many uh, young is kind well. Of, it's uh, yes. It's a symbol, a sign of great prosperity. Okay. Uh, because I mean, the average litter of, of hogs, I don't know, is maybe eight, eight to twelve, something like that. That's mm-hmm. a rough estimate. Thirty. That's a that's a prodigy of nature, right? Yeah. That, that's incredible. And that the sow is white. It's it's albino, right? Right. And uh, it's because it's rare. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and see. and as you were saying, I mean, the pig was a, a common animal in in ritual sacrifice. Very common. So it certainly has echoes of that as well. Right. right. That's that's a lot of bacon, let me just say. A lot of bacon. It reminded me of um, a, a similar kind of story when Cadmus is looking for his sister, uh, and he goes Europa. to- Europa. Europa, and he goes to Delphi, and uh, Apollo basically tells him, you're not going to find your sister, but you got a different path of destiny. You leave right. here, and says, and, and find a cow with strange markings, follow it until it rests, and that's where you're going to find your city. Yeah, Thebes, as it turned out. Yes, and so it seems a, a very similar kind of vibe here. Mm-hmm. Look for something kind of- gentle and common in nature yes. to signal your path. I think the commonality is the important part. So something we've all experienced, I mean, I say all, but in the time, the agricultural setting, the rural setting, they knew what a sow and piglets was. Yeah. So something that's common in that sense, but it's extraordinary in the specific instance, right. right? That it's white and it has a litter of 30 piglets. Right. No one had ever seen anything like yeah. that. So it stands out. It does. And I think there's, there's kind of the element too, is that, um, the uh, things that are so common in nature, um, but if you know how to look at them, right? They, that you know, even something like for the you know the the, the Romans will look at birds flying, right? right? And so just something as common that you see everyday birds flying in the sky, but if you know how to look at them, right? They can give you a glimpse into the future, right? Here. And I'll hear, of course, that we have a god telling Aeneas exactly what it is, but right. it is that something that you know, if you look at nature in a particular kind of way, you can see the divine. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's exactly right. So you have to know how to peel back appearances yeah. and see the deeper meaning hidden in everyday events. Right. Yeah. And one more thing that struck me here too is, is that this is also, um, with the Tiber speaking, right. we have not just you know Venus on, on uh, Aeneas' side, you know, the imported Greek gods. Right. We have the indigenous gods of Italy itself are saying, yes, we're glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. Yes. Yeah. So that's going to be a theme that emerges throughout the rest of the epic. And we, you know, we've seen signs of it already in book seven, um, that the indigenous deities, like you're saying, mm-hmm. the, what, thousands of different small divinities that litter the landscape. Yes. They're going to come out of the woodwork now and embrace the new Lord, which is Aeneas. Right. So that whole concept of, of, um, you know, a grove or a stream or a forest having a Newman, right? right. This kind of this inherent divinity about it with something very Roman. Yes, I'm having a dim memory here. Yeah. Of back to an episode, um, what's a motto with you? About the state <laughs> mottos, part one. I think I think the word Newman yeah. is in the um, the motto of Colorado. 
if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I think you're right. Something else ridiculous. It's just a dim memory. Yes, no, you're right. And I'm I'm kind of half grasping it too, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying to drive people back to listening. <laughs> I'm uh, I know someday I'm just I'm dying to do an episode that we will entitle um Hello Newman. Yeah, well right? we did Hello Numa. Did, oh, we did Hello Numa. Oh, we've already right. done it. Yeah, okay. we did Numa, so oh, that's that, right. it's, it's it's tired. <laughs> but a, a Numen is the divine presence. Yes. And all of the indigenous ones, right? Of um, the Italian landscape, they're all on Aeneas' side. Yes, right. So that, that's that's very important. Again, it's another one of these very clear symbols that Aeneas needs to kind of let him know, uh, okay, this is where fate wants me. Right. Yeah. And the listener might also be aware of a really interesting story. We'll have to cover this at some point. Uh, from Livy, right? So in the the pre-Rome era, I mean the early early Republican Rome, I guess I should say, the character of uh, Horatius Cocles. Yeah. Right. The guy who stands on the bridge and holds back the um, invading Etruscans. Yes. Right. Yes. And at one point, what does he do? He um, he prays to Father Tiber. Right. Pater Tiberina. Oh, oh, Father Tiber. And then he jumps into the river. Oh, that's right. Fully clad in all his armor in a, in a hail of arrows and swims safely to the shore, single handedly saving the city of Rome against invasion. Right. So I think that well illustrates how important the Tiber River was. To the whole civilization. Yeah. It was very meaningful then that this god appears to Aeneas and says, welcome home. Exactly. Exactly. So Tiberinus tells him, you've got to go find these Arcadians. There. Right. And and and, uh, and so um, Aeneas and his men make their way down the down the river. Tiber, Tiber kind of carries them along, almost mm-hmm. like, a, like a, a Disney World ride. Yes. Kind of, uh, the apparent. description is about how calm and placid the water is as they row. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a nice... It's a nice um, comfy journey mm-hmm. and they find the the Acadians there and they find them um, as kind of this rustic group of people that live very close to nature they right. have no fancy buildings kind of just kind of these mud huts mm-hmm. um, and so there are no re- electric cars everything right. is kerosene powered right um, and Arcadia um, you know, so the, the the land of Arcadia is this you know, place in kind of the central part of the Peloponnese. This is confusing, right? Yes. This confused me for some time when I was a younger classicist. Reading about Arcadia here in Book 8 of the Aeneid, and I was thinking, but there's another Arcadia in Greece. Yes. The one that you're talking about. Can you sort that out for us? Yeah. And we, we've driven through there. Yes, right? we have. You re- you, when you're like with the groups of students, you rarely stop in Arcadia. No, because you, you're going from west to east, from Olympia, yeah. trying to get to uh, Nafplio. Right. That's typically what we've done. Right. And it's still, I mean, t- to this day, Arcadia is it's very mountainous. It's very, it's, it's full of olive groves. Largely uninhabited. Uninhabited. I mean, low population. Right. Now, if you go a little bit south of there... As I actually accidentally did once, I think it was 2014. You you'll be stuck for a long time. <laughs> Where were you stuck? <laughs> well, I mean, I was going from Olympia to Nafplio, but I decided not to take the more northerly road, okay, which hugs the coast a little bit. Yes, and and ends up in the direction of Corinth. Right. Um, I decided let's go south a little bit through Arcadia, and well, it's just so mountainous, just endless winding serpentine switchbacks. Right. You just can't. I mean, I turned out fine, but. It's not a short trip. No, no, exactly. For the very reason you're describing. Right. Idyllic, rugged landscape. Right. And so it's associated with the um, Hermes was believed to have been born there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hermes has these aspects of his of his godhood as a kind of a god of shepherds. Right. A god of liminal places. Oh, boy. Right? Wasn't yeah. Pan there as Pan well? Pan as well. So it's, it's very, it's very, 
you know, kind of God haunted and um, eerie and mystical mm-hmm. um, and very natural. Yeah, and the uh, the Temple of Apollo at uh, Bassai is there, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, which is I've never seen it. The temple person. under the big tent. That's right. We stopped, I stopped there once. You've been there. Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen. It. I really want to see it. It has the. It's got the first Corinthian column, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Is in that particular temple. Yeah. It's a wild place. It is a wild place. Yep. Yep. And so, um, but that's not the Arcadia that we're dealing with here in Aeneid Book Eight. No, but they, the fact that they are described as Arcadians, I think a lot of that, um, you know, that kind of the aspect of being very close to nature, being very simple, not having, um, you know, the civilization of walls and architecture, it's all connected together. So it's kind of borrowing by calling it Arcadia. You're kind of borrowing all of the mystique of the original. I one. think so. Right. And so this reminded me of. Um, in Virgil's Eclogues, right. in, in Eclogue 5, yes. he talks about uh, Arcadia, the Greek Arcadia. Yes. And um, I just want to read a little bit of, um, uh, and it's from Wikipedia. Oh, that's but, okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the Wikipedia entry about uh, Vir- Virgil's fifth Eclogue says, in Eclogue 5, the shepherds uh, Menalcus Monoc- and Mopsus mourn their deceased companion Daphnis by promising to praise Daphnis to the stars. Yes, to the stars, uh, raise Daphnis. Menalcus and Mopsus praised Daphnis out of compassion, but also out of obligation. Daphnis willed that his fellow shepherds memorialize him by making him a mound and adding above the mound a song. Daphnis am I in woodland, hence known far as the stars. Um, not only are Daphnis' survivors concerned with solidifying and internalizing his poetic reputation, but the dead shepherd poet himself is involved in the self-promotion from beyond the grave through the ages of his will. So these um, these uh, shepherd poets are memorializing. They set up a tomb for their dead okay. friend and kind of trying to find a, a immortality for him. And what I found interesting about this is it's from that episode comes this phrase um, which becomes popular in the 17th century right. of et in Arcadia ego. Right. Uh, so even I am in Arcadia. And, right. And most people take the I referring to death. Okay. So like even in this idyllic perfection um, death arises. And there's a number of, of, of paintings from the 17th century that kind of use it. It's, it's kind of a, a callback to a Roman a memento mori. It's right. like, you know, even in the midst of heaven, death is still there. Got it. Got it. Right. So, and I, so, so that tag comes from Eclogue 5. It does. Okay. Right. And so I, I wonder, I wondered if, you know, um, if Virgil had that in mind mm. when he introduced these Arcadians as, as kind of, yes, idyllic, they're on Aeneas' side, they're kind of natural allies. The fact that they're close to nature makes them pure in some sense, mm-hmm. but also there's kind of this whisper of there's also going to be death involved here. So, yeah. I, I mean, in book eight, we see we see this, uh, again, that that anxiety about um, the Roman project. Mm-hmm. This is a great destiny, but it's going to be bloody. Yeah. So I wonder if that, you know, that you know, even I, death, am in Arcadia is also Virgil's meant to be kind of whispering that to us in this episode. Yeah. Possibly. Interesting. Quite plausible. But speaking of anxiety about the Roman project. Yes. It's time for the ads. All right. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee, located in Portland, Oregon, is the brew child of the fabulous entrepreneur, Mr. Mark Helweg. He was tired of having mass-produced coffee fed to the masses. He'd had it. He'd had it. Yes. And so he invented two, not one, but two beautiful countertop coffee machines, the Racial 6 
and the ratio eight. Yes. Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about your morning ritual that might someday make it into an epic poem? Yes. Of making coffee with your eight. Right. I like to have everything set to go the night before. The night before. You right. grind the beans the night before? No, no I, do, I, do the, I do grind the beans in the morning because okay. I, I want to keep that fresh. Right. But I have the water loaded. Nice. Um, I recently got myself a, a metal filter. Oh, you did? I did. Yeah. It's, it's, they're great, aren't they? They're great. It's, a, it's, really, it's really quite wonderful. So I have the, my glass, hand-blown glass carafe. Borosilicate. Waiting uh, you know, on its little resting pad. Right. I got the filter waiting there. I just ground the beans, pour it into the filter, hit the button and go. And then you have to hang around and tend to it and watch it and baby it and things like that? No. It's it's three simple stages and wow. it's, it's a it's a one press of a button. Okay. So the first stage is? The bloom stage. Okay. And what happens in that stage? Well, it's all, that's where all the off-gassing happens. Okay. Yes, exactly. So the uh, hot water comes down into the cone? Yep. And what happens to those grinds, the, those grounds? Those grounds, I mean, they, they soak up the, I, I, uh, is it 200 degrees? Yes. Water coming some out, hot water. Uh, out of the Fibonacci head. That's right. Um, and it comes down, drips through the filter into my glass carafe, and probably within six minutes, right? I got a, I got a, a, a perfectly brewed pot of coffee. Didn't you skip a couple stages? Oh, it's well, you've got the brew stage. Well, after the bloom, bloom all, all got, the carbon dioxide floats away floats into away. the biosphere, right? And then you got the brew stage, right? Which is the, where the water going through the grind. So the little LED light moves over. Yep. Right. And then um, the last stage is. It's ready. It's ready. That's it. And you remove it, and it's difficult to pour, right? No, it's the, it's the the aesthetic of the pour. Are it's it's something sublime. Something sublime. Okay. It's, it's wonderful and right. a delicious cup of coffee every time. Yeah, I visited some friend's house. Oh, this was maybe in November. Oh, I don't know. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> and this delightful woman who yeah. who's I'm very fond of, she says to me, "I would offer you coffee." But after listening to all of your advertisements, <laughs> I'm more than a little embarrassed, so I'm only offering tea. Oh, wow. She thought that I was some kind of a coffee snob. Now, she was right. Yes. And she was worried that her coffee game was going to be off, so we had a delicious cup of tea. Oh, gotcha. So, but she didn't want to haul the, the, the Bracken Blecker. That's or, right. Yeah. Or the Senor coffee or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Like squirty plastic arms. Right. Yeah. It probably would, the machine probably would have cowered in and of itself if it had seen When it coming. saw me. Yes. One of the representatives of the Ratio it's 8. Like, they know. They, they know. know. Yeah. Exactly. So, let's say one of our loyal listeners mm -hmm. is looking to up their coffee game in 2023. Yeah. What should they do, Jeff? Well, they should go to ratiocoffee.com. That's R A T I O coffee.com. Uh, pick out the machine that you want, the six, or it's, uh, it's Bigger Brother, the eight. They're kind of hideous, aren't they? They're beautiful machines. Okay. Yeah, they're works of art. Uh, type in this coupon code, A-N-C-O-K-5, mm. and uh, that will get you 15% off your entire order. Yeah, what does the K stand for? The K stands for... Um, Kodiak. Kodiak? Is yeah, it's like a the biggest bear of a oh, coffee yeah, machine. Oh, yeah, 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 there you go, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. K5. A-N-C-O-K-5. What does that get them? That gets you 15% off your entire okay. order. Yeah. Now, finally, just one last question. Yes. What if someone says, look, I love the podcast yeah. and I'd like to support it and mm -hmm. I love coffee, but this machine, you know, I can't pick it up at uh, Tarmart or Walgett for uh, 25 bucks. Right. You know, it's it's not that attainable. What would you tell them? Well, I tell them a couple of things. I'd say this is a this is a this is an investment in your coffee. This is going to be around for a very very long time. Decades. Decades. Right? And frankly, and uh, friends don't let friends uh, drink brackish tang. That's a brilliant statement. Someone should put that on a mug. That would be perfect. What for was a that mug. again? That would be friends don't let friends drink 
brackish tang. I love it. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. You know, Dave, it's the beginning of a new semester for me. Yes. At my uh, at my college. Yes, you're and, Ivy Walled Institution. Yes, and I always like to um, get a couple of, of Hackett published texts into my classrooms. Excellent. Yep. And this is this year's no different. I got the the Lombardo um, Iliad and Lombardo uh, Odyssey. You teaching those two texts this spring? I am teaching both those texts. Wow, yep. those are some lucky students in that class. Yes, right. Now, because now, of the discount. The disc. Of, of course, the discount. But also <laughs> just the high quality translations. These guys have been around right for um, over fifty years. It's fifty one now. Fifty one. The golden anniversary year is over, folks. That's right. But. Um, They've got. They still got their their uh, headquarters in Indianapolis and Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's correct. And these guys have been consistently putting out just uh, great, high quality, affordable translations and works of in every other corner of academia for a long time. Yeah, not just classics. They have Asian studies. They have South American studies. They've got psychology. They got philosophy, political science. Very broad. Very very broad. Right. And and as we've as we've often talked about, they'll often have. Two or more translators of the same work, so you can even get a variety in kind of the approach to right. the uh, to the, the the ancient work that you're interested in. Yeah. So yeah. someday we have to do an episode that's devoted entirely yep. to your uh, dissertation, which is Epileus. Yes. And the uh, Metamorphoses, mm-hmm. and you know maybe do something on um, one of my special authors in grad school, which was Plato. We haven't really talked about Plato much at all. That's yeah. I wonder if Hackett has resources on Epileus and Plato. I believe they they have. Of uh, course. Of course they do. Right. right. So, listeners, uh, go to HackettPublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T Publishing.com. Scroll through their incredible catalog. Find the books that you want. Type in, in this coupon code, A-N-2023, because we got the, it's the new year. Um, and, Dave, what will that get them? It will get them 20% off their entire order. And? Well, that's a fifth, if I'm not mistaken. That is, yeah. yeah. And free shipping. Free shipping. You don't want to miss that. Check it out. All right, Jeff, so as we get back into it, mm-hmm. the Arcadians, they're having some kind of a festival for Hercules, That's right? That's right, yep. They're in their rustic setting when Aeneas and his crew on a couple of uh, fleet galleys row into town and, and dock along the harbor there. Right. Again, echoes of Homer all over the place. If you remember when uh, Telemachus shows up at Nestor's place, That's right. they're in the middle of a, of a festival of, of Poseidon. It sounds right. like a really wonderful place, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that there always there's always some kind of a festival going on. Right. If I stop by your house uh, there in the Heritage Hill area, yeah. will there be a festival going on? All the time. Block parties, <laughs> uh, you, you name it, right? I just roll up and the, well, the, the Winkles are having another party. Right. Like, yeah. And if you looked at that, like that Augustine... Um, you know, calendar of festivals. Right. If you if you celebrated every one, you'd never you'd never spend a day at work at no, all. Right. It was right. just party all the time. That's right. right. It's that four o'clock cake fix. Right. So here we have this very this very kind of rustic, um, warm, wonderful celebration happening. Uh, Evander's son, Pallas. Yes. Uh, he's a little he's a little nervous. He's, he's caught, the first to spot them. Yes. And he's right. a little, he, he he steps forward and basically says, "Hey, what's what's going on? You know, who are you guys?" Now we don't know really much of all of anything about Pallas at this point. Except that he's associated with Athena. Yeah. Well, yeah, I by mean, the, the name. The name kind of gives that away. Right? And he's going to be really important to the plot later on. Yes. Uh, right. I want to give that away. That's a major spoiler alert. Yeah. There. Hang on to this. A major guy. spoiler. Right. A palace is really significant to the plot. Yes. Right. So Aeneas, um, he literally holds up an olive branch yep. and says, hey, we're Dardanians. And uh, immediately for palace, oh, that's enough. He says, oh, yeah, come on in. Uh, let me take you to meet my dad. Come join the festival. 
Um, and so he meets, they meet Evander. Mm-hmm. They kind of, again, they do, uh, it's very Homeric. They kind of share um, uh, backstories. And Aeneas immediately says, listen, we've, we've got common heritage uh, right. together, right? We know through, through Dardanus. Um, yes. Yep. Stretching back now, um, it's, it's Floyd Mayweather, right? The boxer? Who, who is the Grand Rapids native? Yes. Not Evander Holyfield. No. Okay. Yes, yeah, so another boxer, but not a uh, junior. Okay. Right. 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 So he's you, the guy who got his ear bitten off by Tyson. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I saw a great interview with uh, Tyson and Holyfield. You know, twenty years after the event. Oh, did they have they kind of have they? Uh, yeah, it's really, the hatchet. You should watch it sometime. It's yeah. really really funny. Oh, okay. Uh, Tyson says, "Look, I said I'm sorry. <laughs> I said I'm sorry." He, kept, he just kept saying that. Yeah. I, I apologized to him. And I think it was Larry King. He's trying to get him to fight on set, basically. Trying to rile him up right. a little bit. Because right. that's how you make a good interview. Yeah, him. yeah. And Holyfield says, yeah, he apologized. Yeah. Tyson just keeps saying, I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so what a great name for a boxer. Evander. Evander. Right. Right. Named after um, this guy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, strong, goodly man. Yeah, and I've noticed in African American culture, there's a deep um, love and reverence for these these ancient names. And, yes, and, um, Evander, uh, Aeneas is a very common. I've met my share of Achilles. Right. So I just I just find that just really really interesting. It is interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they 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 share kind of they realize okay we've got we've got blood ties going back uh, to to Atlas the Titan. Yep. Um, and again that reminder of you know family ties that's you know. Uber Ollies, right. right? I mean, that's more important than than kind of local, you know, rivalries. Um, if you've got blood ties, if you have you know, guest friendship ties, yeah. well, that that just kind of rolls off the red carpet. Well, here in uh, West Michigan, um, your folk have this kind of tradition, don't they? We do. Yeah, the Dutch bingo. Oh yeah, don't it's, don't yeah. you play the Dutch bingo? I, it's something I find tiresome. That's odd because yeah. you like it in mythology. I, yeah, well, but it's tiresome when it's too close. I don't. I can't can explain you ex- it. Can you explain to those who are listening what Dutch bingo is? Um, what Dutch bingo is like if you meet somebody that has like a particular last name and that immediately reminds them, oh, Van Anderwalden. Van Anderwalden. Um, you know, are you? Do you know? Are you related to? And then you bounce mm-hmm. around and, and eventually you'll find like, oh, you, you know, that's the second cousin of right. So, so well, they so. used to go to school together, and right. actually they were they got married, and so we're really you know eighth cousins, four time eighth cousins, fourth time removed. Right, exactly. I think where my dis, my distaste comes from is that my wife's family isn't a part of that at all, and right. it, she hates it. Really? Oh, she she can't stand it. Hmm. Right. It's it's so in. It's like you know so. You know, does, does in the Ms. know, clubby, cookie. Does Mrs. Winkle have no anthropological interests? She's not. No, not really. She doesn't want to stand back and observe the peculiarities of other cultures? I, I think she has a broad interest in that, but she finds that she, she, when, it, when it happens, like when we're when, it, when we're out or we meet somebody, right. it's just an eye roll for her because right. she, she's immediately excluded from it, hmm. right? And so it's she just finds yeah. it irritating. It's well, like, I'm oh, not you're Dutch. not in the club. Right. right. Well, I'm not Dutch at all, and neither is my wife. Yeah. And when I hear people around here playing this game, you know, I think it's really interesting. I think it'd be different if if, if Maybe. Uh, Mrs. Noe was, was a Dutchie. Right? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Right. I mean, it's no Racco, let's be honest. It's not, not that much fun. <laughs> right. But it's, I mean, it's who's related to whom. Right. That's my point is this is what they're doing. They're doing Dutch bingo. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. So we can yeah. relate. Okay. Yeah. So Vander even reveals that, hey, you know, way back when, Aeneas, I met your dad and he gave me some cool gifts. I got a quiver out of him and a, and a gold cloak and... And uh, some spurs. And some spurs still got him. Right. Yep. And Anchises, I was so excited to meet him, says Evander. He was like, kind of like, famous. He was like, yeah, hero worship. Right. right. Head right. and shoulders, right? Yeah. He signed my arm. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Um, so the feast begins, 
And um, Evanda reveals very dramatically that they are sitting uh, on the site. You see these. He said, "You see these collapsed boulders over here. This was once the cave of the dread Caucus." Wouldn't that kind of make you lose your appetite? I mean, you're halfway through the dessert Twinkie at the picnic, and <laughs> you know that's where Caucus used to use the restroom. <laughs> Wouldn't that just that would that would kind of like, like sour the experience? Exactly. You set the Twinkie down and right. think, okay, where's this okay. going? <laughs> just walk away, right? But he he uh, he he uh, you know he um, he gestures towards the cave and right. he breaks into the story. I think this would be a good time for probably a little bit more Latin. Yeah, they're fast. I would love to, but they're yeah. fascinated by it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it doesn't lead them to um, you know walk away or be repulsed. No, but they think, oh, so this is where Caucus, the famous monster. Was slaughtered, right? And so, and, and that's fascinating. That's fascinating. They would have known this story. It's part of kind of the you know the oral heritage, right? Mm. So now they're kind of the uh, uh, they're kind of living they're living the story. Is it like visiting a battlefield? Have you been? To, you've been to Gettysburg. I have, right? Yep. And uh, I've been to Gettysburg. Um, what is it, uh, Manassas or what is? I'm not sure what the Confederates call it, but the the Confederates call Gettysburg. No, Manassas in Virginia. There, yeah. there's different names for some of the battle. I don't mean the Confederates. I mean the Southerners. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> they have different names for some of these battlefields. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Is this like visiting a battlefield? I think so. I mean, I love that kind of. Or it's even to me, it's like. Um, I think a better corollary would be um, visiting a place uh, where yeah, your favorite movie was shot. Mm. Like, oh, like you can kind of okay. like, you kind of relive the narrative. But I think the battlefield, yeah, you can kind of see where the whole thing went down. Do you think I just alienated a large portion of our southern audience? But by calling them Confederates? I didn't really call them Confederates. No, you didn't. Okay. You're fine, yeah. Do you remember when we were in Perugia? I do. And it was cold and dreary. And yes. we walked by this abandoned ramshackle spot. Mm-hmm. And you said that's the place where mm-hmm. uh, the Amanda Knox. The Amanda Knox kind of murder thing happened. Yeah. Correct. So is that like Caucus? I, I think so. It's got kind of an, an eerie quality. It's a bit of, it's a bit salacious. Right. A bit. So, yeah, who wouldn't get sucked in by that? It's, okay. it's like, you, know, you, you flip on, you know, um, ID and, ooh, a true crime show. Right. right? You know, so it's got that quality to it. Okay. Yeah. You want me to read it in that tone of voice? Like, uh, what is it, Keith Morrison? Oh, would you do? Would you let no. <laughs> <laughs> Line 193. Here we go. Hic very nice. Thank you. you know, we've talked a lot about you know stuff that we we don't like and that we get sick of in this right. episode. I, I never get sick of that. Oh, I, I love I, I love your your readings. Oh, I love the line one ninety nine here. It's got a uh, ad nauseum reference, right? Womains. <laughs> Womains. He's right. belching forth from his mouth. He's belching forth fire. Right. So I thought it would be it'd be worth reading. Um, the scene more or less in full okay. in Lombardo's translation. Maybe, can we, let's go, want to... We'll, back and forth a little back bit? Back and forth. Yeah, how point. about you start? All right. So Are we going to wear costumes also? Oh, that'd be nice. Okay. I wasn't th- planning ahead. Evander says, there, was a, there once was a cave here, its depths never fathomed by sunlight, the lair of a half-human monster, an ogre named Cacus. The ground there always smoked with fresh blood, and nailed to the door hung human heads moldering in decay. Oh, that's <laughs> awful. That's awful. It's foul. <laughs> the monster's father was Vulcan. It was his black fire's caucus belched as he moved his hulking form. Time at last answered our prayers in the person of a god, the mightiest Avenger. There's the line. There he is. Hercules. 
glorifying in the slaughter of Garion and driving that triform ghouls huge bulls in triumph, filling the Tiber's valley with cattle. Cacus, whose fiendish mind could leave no crime undared or trick untried, rustled four superb bulls from the corral and as many equally outstanding heifers. He dragged these cattle by their tails to his cave so no one could track them back to him. That's a clever trick, right? Tracks are moving backward into the cave? Right. Okay. Then he hid the animals in the rocky gloom. No one searching could find any telltale marks leading to that cave. Amphitryon's son, that's Hercules, meanwhile, was moving the well-fed herds out of their pens, rounding them up for the trail. The cattle lowed as they headed out, and the woods and hills were filled with their bellowing until the echoes began to die away. And then one heifer lowed in response from the depths of the cave, undoing Caucus. So Her- Hercules, he's ready to go. Right. But he hears... He hasn't noticed right. the bulls are gone. Right. Exactly. And so he's ready. He's going. And I guess is um, what's behind this is that if Hercules doesn't bring all the cattle, he doesn't get credit for the labor? It's- well, I think it's possibly that. I think he also just doesn't like his property taken. <laughs> right. I think right. that's the main thing. Okay, okay. Even property, we're going to talk about this in a minute, even property that he himself has stolen <laughs> is not to be taken by someone else. Yeah, right. I got you, right. I'm just trying to imagine driving all of these cattle from Spain to Greece. What, well, a, what a pain. Yeah. yeah. Have, have you driven cattle on shorter distances? No, I've seen movies about it, though. Okay. Right, so it, lo- it looks like... This a, is Hercules. A tremendous pain, right? This and is Hercules. Whenever you see it in, in, in westerns, you've got at least like 12 cowboys on, on horses. You've got right? horses. Hercules right. doesn't need a horse. No, he's doing it all on his own. Right? But Hercules can do these things because okay. he's the mightiest adventurer. Right. All right, carrying on. The wrath of Hercules flared with black bile. He seized his weapons, his heavy knotted club, and ran straight up the slope like the mountain wind. It was then we first saw Cacus afraid, eyes shifting with terror. He flew to his cave faster than the east wind. Fear lent wings to his feet. He shut himself in and broke the chains that held the giant rock suspended in iron by his father's craft. So can you explain, Jeff, what is that? What, what is what? That part. He, he, he broke the chains that held the giant rock suspended in iron by his father's craft. Is this so, some kind of a trap door? I, or or it's, it's, yeah, some kind of like, uh, yeah, the, the chains are holding the rock in front of the entrance. And when you break the, the chains, it blocks it. the rock falls down and now Hercules can't get in. Right. Okay. Right. The rock dropped down, blocking the entrance at just the moment when Hercules arrived, raging mad. He scanned every approach, looking around and gnashing his teeth. Three times he traversed the Aventine Mount. Three times he tried the rock-solid entrance. Three times he sank down in the valley, exhausted. Ah, and the Aventine, that's one of Rome's seven hills. It is. Yep, it's uh, one of the slopes that um, overlooks where the Circus Maximus We've been there, haven't we? We have, Up on top is the... uh, the palace of Livia, right? Right, right, right. And uh, right next to her um, palace is that of Augustus. Yes. Yep. Caucus was caught in the unexpected daylight. I like that, right? He uh, pulls off the top of the mountain, Hercules does, right? Yes. Penned in by rock walls, Caucus howled eerily as Hercules rained down upon him everything he could throw. Weapons, branches, empty milk jugs. <laughs> no, I just made that up. Colossal millstones. Man. Cornered, Caucus did the only thing he could, belching out clouds of smoke, an amazing display. That's got to be Mirabala Wisu. Yeah. Is that really, uh, I'm interrupting the flow here, but yeah. is that really an effective defense? <laughs> belching out clouds of smoke? Right. So Hercules is dropping everything in the kitchen sink on you from high above and the top of the mountain, you know, its cone has been broken off. Right. 
while he's raining down blows upon your back, yeah. what do you do? You belch out smoke? I don't, yeah, I don't think Caucus, you know, he didn't think this through, or he had no idea whose cattle he was stealing. That's correct. Right. Okay. They just looked like four bulls. I'll take them. I'll take them. No. That enshrouded his subterranean home in blinding smog shot through with dark flames. Undeterred, Hercules hurled himself into the inferno where the huge cave was choked with roiling smoke. He found Caucus there spewing forth his fiery vapors in vain. Hercules gripped him in a knotted hold and squeezed until Caucus's eyes bulged out and his throat was drained of blood. Then, with hardly a pause, he tore off the doors and the den was laid bare. The stolen oxen, a theft Caucus had denied, were exposed to the sky and the gruesome carcass was dragged out by the feet. All right. And so... That's the end of that guy. That's the end of that guy. And the Arcadians tell the story as, as like, oh, he was our rescuer. Right? And now that Caucus is gone, we are, you know, we can... We can breathe. We can live. Well, there were those moldering human heads on spikes <laughs> outside his door. That's got to be pretty, pretty frightening. Terrifying. Right? Yeah, and the name Caucus, right, is just the Greek kakos, right. meaning bad guy. Bad guy. Evil. He's the he's evil incarnate. Is the idea right? Right. Now, one of the the um, the critiques of this passage, or the head scratchers about this passage, where Evander says, "It was then we first saw Caucus afraid, eyes shifting with terror." Um, how do we read that? Like Evander was an eyewitness to oh, this. That is such a petty criticism. Okay, and 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 so Evander's claiming to be living at the same time no, as Hercules. No, it's like when you say, you know, they say, right? Yeah. You know, they say you don't have anyone particular in mind. Like, like who's they? Right. Right. That's such a petty rejoinder. What you're really saying is, it is conventional wisdom that. Yeah. So what Evander obviously means is that is the first time that anyone saw a caucus, etc. And it's based on the later description of seeing the dead corpse. Is that really a criticism? In Secchi's article, or further on the article, oh. he talks about this maybe would have been something that Virgil, had he gone back, no. he would have smoothed it out. No, no, I don't uh, think so. No. Yeah. That seems so absurd. I didn't know it was Secchi when I called it petty. I don't want to do that, but... yeah. How does it How does it strike you? I don't think it's a very strong argument. Um I don't, the, um, no, it's, when I, I read, the, I, I read his article and I saw this and I thought, eh. It's poetry. That's right. We, it, we, we, we still will tell stories like do you, that. Do you right? know the song by Mr. Mr. Um, Kyrie Eleison? Of course. Right. So there's a line in there, somewhere between the soul and. Soft machine. Soft machine. Yeah. The soft machine is the body, right? Isn't that what that means in that line? Somewhere between the soul and soft machine? I thought it was referring to like computers. You're kidding, aren't you? Software. No, you're making a joke. I'm not making a joke. You really th- think that's what it meant? I, I've not thought a lot about this song. Okay, <laughs> I didn't give you much warning. It's got a good tune. It does. Maybe you could dance to it. Uh, I, I love the uh, the vocal intro, but my point is, yeah. it's poetry. It, it, it doesn't have to stand up to rigorous philosophical analysis. Right. It's supposed to be evocative and suggestive right like this yeah i no i i agree and i think that by um evander uses the first person plural there it often reminds me too when people are recounting watching um a sporting event and they 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 say and then we scored exactly you didn't score the team did right but you identify so much with the team so i think that's what he's doing here obviously right he is after all hercules descendant so he's got some stake in this right exactly now i think there are way more interesting questions to to uh examine here so, so um i mean as we said earlier in the episode we have this long digression 
it's got to mean something. Okay. Okay. So what what is the purpose of this story here? What is the purpose of this story told? So um, that it, it's going into Aeneas's ears. What's the lesson? You know, if we're playing, um, if we're playing like the the um, the game in the Odyssey with like the uh, Aphrodite and Ares uh, story, right? Um, you know, it's for Odysseus. Kind of um, watch out. Is, has your wife been faithful? Mm. You know. Um, Hephaestus kind of stands in for Odysseus. You know, he's 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 clever in a certain kind of way. So, if we play that game, who is Aeneas in this story? Right. Um, how do we read it? I find that stuff very very interesting. Okay. Before we go to that, yes. Can we have a little bit of a um, travelogue, a little bit of a digression? Let's do this. Yes. My favorite city, probably my favorite city in Italy, like many people, is Florence. Yes. And uh, how many times have you been to Florence? Probably lost count. But many many times. Yes. Yeah. So right outside the Academia. Right, where uh, the statue of um, Michelangelo's David is now housed. It mm-hmm. used to be in the piazza itself, is a very gorgeous um, sculpture group by Baccio Bandinelli. Yeah. So it'd be Hercules and Caucus. Yes. We got it's, and Caucus is kind of, he's like down on his knees. He's crouching. And Her- does, uh, Hercules has him like by the hair. Yes, with his left hand grasping his hair. And in his right hand is the knurled club. Right. With which he's going to beat him senseless. Yes. And eventually dispatch him. Yes. So this was sculpted sometime between 1525 and 1534. Yeah, height of the um, height of the Renaissance. Right, and yeah. it was intended to stand next to Michelangelo's David in the same style. And uh, Hercules, his brow is furrowed. He's gazing off into the distance. It looks like the dispatching of Caucasus is completely an afterthought. He's putting no effort into this uh, particular side job. It's very different than the the episode we just read. That's true. Yeah. He put a lot of effort into that. Yes. Well, the one thing I would like to add to that statue is maybe a little tube that would kind of send some smoke out of Caucasus's mouth. That would be nice. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing they would do in Vegas, yeah, that'd right? Be very Vegas. But not in the Renaissance. No, 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 no. You're right. Exactly. So to your interpretive question. Yeah. What does Aeneas make of this tale, this digression? Where does he find himself in the story? Is he supposed to learn something from it? Right. Or is, or what, what are the larger themes presented here? Is it, you know, a classic tale of civilization over savagery. You know, like he's he, the cult hero, right. right? He's got to tame the wild in order to make it habitable. Right. And, you know, uh, and Heracles' labors um, in art were often used for that purpose, like uh, like on the the Temple of Zeus at Olympia. Yes. You have the labors, and it's it's civilization over savagery. Absolutely. Right? Same as um, Theseus on the Hephaestion in the Agora. Exactly, or the Lapis and the Centaurs. Correct. Right. So is it... Is it that? For um, sure it's that. It's for, yes. Um, but is it only that? Is it only that, right? So um, in, you know, in this passage, if it is civilization over savagery, uh, Hercules himself is pretty savage. That's okay. Uh, uh, yes. That but, doesn't bother me. Okay, He's killing a monster. Right. Okay. It's just, it's, it, it, is he the best exemplar? Winkle, for... you're so modern. <laughs> <laughs> How many times do I, I'm just kidding, but yeah. uh, this must come up in the classroom with you. It used to come up with uh, in the classroom for me in classical mythology, the mm-hmm. students would say, Hercules is the hero. He's behaving so brutally. Right. And I would say, but he's killing a monster. Yeah. So what's the problem? Okay. You know? Right. Criminals desert like Caucus, who's not even human. He's subhuman, right? Yes. Uh, they're supposed to get punished. Okay. They didn't like that. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I see you. And I, I, I feel for my students when they, when they bring that stuff up too. But I, what, I, what do your, you say? Your point is taken. How do you respond? Um, well, I mean, I I will often kind of say along the lines of what you just said. It's like you, you're you're interpreting this through your own your own modernist 
lens, right? You you expect these heroes to behave the way you expect heroes right. to behave, right? And you're, you're probably bothered that Hercules didn't recycle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to use your line. <laughs> That's right, right, right. He, right. he had a red bull before he dispatched Caucus, and he just threw it on the Arcadian landscape. Right. All, all I'm saying is that, you know, if... If that is the supposed to be the main punch of this story of the the triumph of civilization over savagery, I don't think it works great along those okay. lines. Right? I think it's more of um, we're in the site of future Rome. You know, the, you know, still on the Palatine Hill, there are the steps of Caucus, right? So the Romans yeah. would say would have known these 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 monuments, these places that where the story is association. So it's it's a little bit of, of fan service to to yes. contemporary Rome. Well, the Aventine is there too, as right. we just mentioned, and it's an it's an ideology of kind of where this stuff came from. I think that's a big part of this, right? Um, but I, I found this. Um, this interesting uh, article from um, another scholar, Leo Trotz Leiboff. Yeah, okay. I wrote an article called "The The Advantage of the Stronger Hercules and Caucus in Virgil's Aeneid," and I thought this was some interesting food for thought. Okay. So let me just read this. So he says, "The Hercules and Caucus episode in Book Eight highlights the problematic nature of Aeneas's exploits throughout the Aeneid. Through the violence of Hercules, Virgil makes the reader question whether a story like the founding of Rome and its eventual imperial expansion can be as cut and dry." as the story of a rugged hero slaughtering someone whose name literally means evil one might superficially seem. Calling into question Aeneas' morality and his justification for settling in Italy in turn cast doubt on Augustus's own means of attaining power. The Hercules and Cacus episode is fundamental to our understanding of the Aeneid as a whole inasmuch as it brings up the question of right. The question of the rightful owner of Garion's cattle finds its parallel in Aeneas's and Turnus's dispute over the betrothal to Lavinia, as well as in Augustus's contested claim to rule Rome. The Italy of Hercules' day, in which violence determines right, must be compared with the universal empire Augustus will eventually establish. This paper explores to what extent the Hercules and Cacus episode can influence our understanding of Aeneas and Augustus and how Virgil might be reacting to the political climate of his day through his poetry. You're shaking your head. I don't buy this at all. Really? Why not? Because it's, it's an attempt to make... Uh, Virgil in uh, what I don't know when this article was written late 20th century early 21st century um, individual very different than he was we have no evidence no evidence that Virgil dissented from the Augustan regime none right. we'll talk about this more at the end of the epic as pr- promised the right episodes um, we have no hard evidence that he had any critical word for Augustus in fact he has praise of him on numerous occasions and so are we to believe that Virgil really, um, I mean, he's no lover of war. He's no warmonger. Right. But it's after three generations, 70 years almost of civil war, mm-hmm. that all this comes to an end. And the Augustan peace was peace. Yeah. Right. It, it, it did bring an end to um, internecine strife. So I just don't find this plausible at all. Okay. This, this problematizing and politicizing. All right. I wouldn't go as far as, as you just went. I think that would never argue that Virgil kind of abandoned the the uh, the Augustan project. But I think the, the Aeneid is full of kind of reminders of, of an honesty about what it took to get there. Okay. Okay. The bloodiness of it all. Right. And so... Reading kind of uh, Hercules like to to tame Cacus, yes, the monster has been defeated. It's it's made the, the place safe for civilization, but look what it took to do that. Uh, Hercules as an as as an exemplar of kind of the the blood that had to be shed to civilize this place. I don't find that implausible as kind of a as kind of a reflection of what it took for Augustus to establish that peace. Yes, except there's a more than a little bit of equivocation. The killing of Cacus is not like. 
the Roman subjugation of, you know, all of the various indigenous peoples that inhabit uh, the Italian peninsula. Well, couldn't Cacus stand in for all of those? I don't think so, because he's a mythological monster. Mm-hmm. Those individuals were were seen as inferior to Rome only because they were defeated, not because they were subhuman. I think that's an important difference. And they were assumed into uh, Roman citizenship so that within not too long from the time of Virgil, you even have emperors who are coming from places like Spain. Mm-hmm. So I just think Cacus doesn't really fit as a substitute for the subjugated indigenous people. So what does it mean? Now, Turnus then? does. Okay. Right? All right. Turnus maybe because he's a Rutulian and he's noble, but Cacus is a subhuman beast. No, nobody, no good hero would hesitate to kill him. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Uh, maybe you're not persuaded. But. I, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm just puzzled by the episode, right? right. I, it, to me, it's to just say, oh, it's, it's a, it's a Lapith and Centaur story. Let's move on. That doesn't satisfy me. There, I agree. There's got to be more to it than that. Okay. So how, can can I read some Brooks Otis? Please. Uh, Virgil, a study in civilized poetry. Brooks Otis. This is uh, page three thirty. Here's a little different perspective. Okay. The meaning of this remarkable book, meaning Book 8, has often been misunderstood because its basic unity of design has not been clearly seen. It has one major theme. Aeneas is the divine man, the Theos Aner, of Roman destiny, whose mission is to defeat impious furor, the furor represented by Alecto and the Latin War. He stands in a present that is framed by a past and a future. The Arcadian Rome, whose Theos Aner, divine man, was Hercules, and the future Rome, whose Theosanere, is to be Augustus. All three symbolize the eternally Roman struggle of pietas and humanitas against savage and barbaric violence, against the force represented by Cacus, Mezentius, and Antony. So Cacus and Hercules, I'm not saying this for your benefit, but yeah. just for everybody's. Cacus in Hercules' time, Mezentius in Aeneas' time, mm-hmm. and Mark Antony in Augustus' time. Aeneas, in witnessing and celebrating the anniversary sacrifices to Hercules, in himself accepting the leadership in the struggle against Mezentius and the Latins, in bearing away the shield whose central panel depicts the Battle of Actium, finally realizes in very deed the role that was paradigmatically pointed out to him in the sixth book. Okay, okay, I like that a lot. Well, I, I do too, but in fairness, to your point, I think this is in some ways just a more exalted way of expressing the notion of a um, cult hero of civilization over savagery. Yes, right. But I like the way Otis kind of, he drew all those parallels. Right? Yes. You have the connection between kind of the, uh, the Greek myth, the story we're talking about right now, and, um, and Augustus. Right. And finding parallels. I find that, I find that very persuasive. Well, the, I do too. And the one other element I find about it that's very persuasive is that the Romans viewed themselves, viewed themselves, no matter what others think, viewed themselves as advancing pietas, you know, care for the gods and care for one's family, yeah. and hum- humanitas, civilization, against savage and barbaric violence. Right. Now, we, at our remove, might say, well, you know, they were, they were imperialists and fascists, maybe, right. in some sense. Yeah. But in some ways, although that may be in, in uh, absolute sense true, it's irrelevant to Virgil and how he saw things. Yeah. Yeah. No. Fair point. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Well, we heard the reference to the shield in there, but that's yes. something we're going to have to cover. It's going to come in the next episode. In the next episode because I think we are up against it.
Absolutely. Yeah, so it is time for us to get out of here. Mm-hmm. But um, before we do that, um, you want to say a little bit about LPSI and, I would like and to. the Moss Method? Yeah, yeah. So we had a one-day flash sale. It was on um, Saturday, December 31. Ring out the old year and ring in the new. Mm-hmm. And uh, got some students signed up. That was very nice. Fantastic. If you want to study uh, Greek with me, you want to go from... Uh, neophytes to erudite. Thank you, Jeff. Yes. Go to mossmethod.com and sign up for my program. It's got 40 instructional videos, 40 assignments. It's got six quizzes, two exams. I mean, that's a lot of material. I think it's an excellent value. It's uh, self-paced. I like to call it expert and accessible. So I can help you learn Greek. And if they go to mossmethod.com, they can check out some free videos. Absolutely. Right. And um, if they sign up for the course, they have direct access to you. Yes. Tomorrow, in fact, tomorrow at 10 a.m., we're having our weekly Moffice hours. Fantastic. And uh, you sign up on for the, the Zoom call and uh, you spend an hour a week with me and other great students. So you get to meet Greek. other people doing this. It's a lot of fun. That sounds great. Yep. And if you want to study some Latin, go to latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI. This is the program I've developed based on Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, and I'll teach you to speak some Latin. Fantastic. So, can't miss it. Excellent. All right. We got to thank some people, as, we, as always. Thanks to Mishka, our intrepid engineer, who puts us all together in record time. Yes. Every time. Makes us sound better than we deserve. Right. And who's, who's making those great noises on this? Oh, yeah. yeah. The intro and outro. That's yeah. uh, Mr. Scott Van Zen, the fabulous guitarist. He's playing in Vegas as we speak. I don't think Speaking of Vegas, yeah. I don't think there's any smoke coming out of his guitar, oh, except metaphorically. Metaphorical smoke. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. a great blues music. <laughs> and uh, he and Ken Tamplin collaborated on that, and Ken uh, gave us the bumper music for the ads. You can check out their uh, vocal and guitar playing programs at KenTamplinVocalAcademy.com and uh, ScottVanZensGuitarSchool.com. Fantastic. Hey, uh, if you want a shout-out, and I know you want a shout-out, um, uh, drop us a note. Uh, to You can write to Dave at Dave at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget that V. Um, or you can write to me. Jeff at AdNauseum.com. Do not forget the V in AdNavseum. Yeah, so write, tell us a little bit about yourself, right. and we will acknowledge you. We want to hear from you. You could pick up a T-shirt, a Kwai Nokent Dokent T-shirt. Yeah. Several different images of Hercules wrestling with a Nemean lion. Yes, very um, relevant. Yes, really beautifully done, put together by our graphic designer, lifting a rock you know, above his, or maybe it's... It's, it's holding up the world in place of Atlas. That's right. Check yep. out a great uh, ad nauseum themed t-shirt. Jeff, what are we doing next week? We're going to uh, hopefully get the rest of the way through book eight and, and get to uh, Aeneas's shield, which is another fascinating scene. Absolutely. Yep. And Dave, you got our gustatory parting shot. I do. And this one's a little long and uh, I think we want to make fun of it a little bit, if I can just <laughs> be honest. Yes. So uh, this is from a guy named Peter Mayle. Mm-hmm. Peter Mayle. And after reading the quote, I had to figure out, who is this guy? So Peter Mayle, according to Wikipedia, is, quote, a British businessman turned author who moved to France in the 1980s. He wrote a series of best-selling memoirs of his life there, beginning with A Year in Provence, which is 1989. All right. So I think that's relevant to the quote. So he says, the French don't snack. They will tear off the end of a fresh baguette, which, if it's warm, it's practically impossible to resist. And eat it as they leave the boulangerie. What what what's a boulangerie? It's just a bakery. Oh, okay. But you can't just say bakery. No, you gotta say boulangerie. If you're Peter Mayle. <laughs> and that's usually all you will see being consumed on the street. Here we go. Compare that with the public eating and drinking that goes on in America. Are you getting is your dander getting up here? 
<laughs> Keep going. He, he means this as a kind of a rebuke, but as I'm reading it, I'm getting hungry. Yeah, yeah. Pizza, hot dogs, nachos, tacos, heroes, potato chips, sandwiches, jerry cans of coffee, <laughs> half gallon buckets of Coke. Diet, of course. All right. I'm going to interrupt Peter here. I'm thinking, who is this guy who's just dragging us through the dirt like we're savages, right. like we're the culinary caucuses? I would expect this if he was actually French. Actually French. <laughs> but then I look it up and guess what? He's a Brit that lived in France. Yeah. He continues, buckets of Coke, diet, of course, and heaven knows what else being demolished on the hoof. On the hoof? That's so dehumanizing. Exactly. Often on the way to the aerobic class. Oh, my gosh. Oh, we're such knuckle-draggers, aren't we? My gosh, right. Yeah. No. So after I read that, I thought, I want to eat a number of those things yeah, and I wanna... then go to the gym. Tomorrow morning, I'm having a jerry can of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.